Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafter, and today I'll be chatting with Leanne Bonner-Cook, founder and CEO of eBate Limited. eBate is an affordable SaaS solution for decision makers who need to implement and gain control of rebate management quickly, improving margins and reducing risk through data insights. Hi, Leanne. How's it going? Hi, good afternoon, Stacey. Very well. How are you? Good, good, good. How's the last couple of days been, weeks been? It's been interesting, hasn't it, with the the whole COVID situation. So we were just starting Mm -hmm. to see light at the tunnel and lockdown was starting to lift. And then unfortunately, um, being in Leicestershire in the UK, that's now gone back into lockdown because the cases have started to increase again. Um, So it is very, very different. It's challenging times, I suppose. But I just think we have to adapt with the situation that we're facing today. How has that impacted business? Very assured. I mean, we've just tried to do an investment. Well, we have been successful in doing an investment round. So that was challenging, trying to get new, fresh money coming mm. into a business uh, during this time, because a lot of the venture capitalists are looking after their own portfolios of companies. Also, from um, people buying pieces of software at this time, I think, again, we've had a lot of inquiries. So it says to me that people are having more time on their hands to maybe look at potential projects for the future. Uh, but in terms of actually doing projects, then I think with distributed work forces, et cetera, at the moment, that has slowed things down quite considerably. Can you give a quick elevator pitch on Ebate Limited? Yeah, absolutely. So Ebate Limited is an end-to-end rebate management solution for decision makers that really want to gain control of their process end-to-end, improving visibility, reducing risks. I want to hear it all. I'm excited to dive into your story. Tell me about your journey to building your career and business. So uh, my career started off, I um, didn't particularly like school. Uh, I'm dyslexic. And in those days, it was very much um, not necessarily recognized as it is today. So you didn't get very much help Mm -hmm. and support. So, But I was good at numbers. So when I left school, I went into an accountancy role. So I left, went to work for a large pharmaceutical company, and I trained on the job doing accounting. So I did my AAT qualifications and then went in to do CMOS. So it took me five years. um, But obviously, during that five years, I was being paid well, I was gaining lots of commercial knowledge, um, and then becoming qualified at the same time. Then after that, um, I once I became qualified, I thought, mm, this accountancy isn't for me. It's quite boring. Um, <laughs> what did I want to do? And technology had just started coming into the workplace. So everybody was starting mm-hmm. to get a desktop on the desk. Um, email was starting to come out and everybody was having access to it. And I could just see the uh, advancements and improvements that technology could make to a, to a role and a job. And at the time when I was doing accounting, it was all big red ledger books that were handwritten. And at the time, I built macros and things using Lotus one, two, three, writing WYSIWYG macros. And quite quickly, you could see how you could save so much time and become so much more productive through the through the use of technology. Mm-hmm. So that really inspired me then into um, perhaps switching career. So within the same business, I moved into their tech team um, and I started off as a Novell network engineer uh, for those that are old enough to remember Novell networks. And <laughs> um, and that was really then, you know, just installing the hardware and things like that. Um, my career then just moved around different roles in IT in a corporate world. Um, mm. I did project management roles, business process improvement roles, and they were all linked to identifying how technology could drive um revenue improvements for a business and really remove the waste and the duplication of effort, et cetera. So, so that's what I ended up doing. Ironically, I found myself um, being in very male-dominated industries for quite quite mm-hmm. some time. So I worked in textiles, I worked in construction. And construction is where I finished my corporate career back in 2007. 
So I was one of the uh, senior managers in the management team at, at um, Lafarge UK in the time. And that company was the top 5% of females. Um, and wow. it's just staggering, really, that at that company with only 5% of females being at that senior level, um, mm. that was quite, quite interesting uh, for me. That also was my decision point to move out of the corporate world and go on my own because I always struggled to get to that next level of the career mm. that I wanted. Um, so I thought, well, hey, how I'll do it for myself then. Um, so in 2007, I left that career and that was my first venture into starting my own business. You have seen great success and have never let dyslexia dictate your future. What message do you have for those that have learning difficulties and may feel a little defeated by them? I would say don't be defeated. You know, you look at most entrepreneurs and they have some sort of disability or disadvantage, um, like dyslexia, mm-hmm. various levels of autism, etc. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's the way our brains work that make us more entrepreneurial mm-hmm. and actually forms part of the DNA. And I and I think if people are honest, then then they would probably say, Yeah, actually it does. I think we need to be a little bit strange to take the risk to be entrepreneurs. Um But I wouldn't say that I've ever let it hold me back either. Uh, So in my earlier career, when I was facilitating workshops and things, I would always say, I can't facilitate, think I'm right, so I need a scribe. So I just worked with it, but worked around it so that people didn't have to know. And today, I'm just completely honest about it. I just think for me now, it's like, hey, I'm dyslexic. So, you you know, I could scribe today, but if I did, you probably wouldn't be able to read it and it wouldn't make any sense to you. (laughs) So and I just think just bring it out in the open making the people around you aware so you don't feel self-conscious about it? Or or what's the reason for bringing it up um, off the bat? I'd say that's actually it. So you don't feel self-conscious about it. And I also today, I think it's experience tells you and just as I've matured over life that, well, actually, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's it's a disability that's there. And and so what? It's not prevented me from moving on and creating a great career for myself. So actually, what I would say is it doesn't matter. You find ways to work with whatever you're presented with and whether that is some form of of disability, some form of, you know, race and religion. You work Mm -hmm. a way out of, of dealing with it so that it works for you. Talking about seeing success and not letting anything hold you back, you have been in male-dominated industries for most of your career and achieved management level at a company with only 5% females. How did you navigate the workplace and achieve these milestones? For me, I would say I've always been myself. I wear my heart on my sleeve and and say it as it is. Um, And I think that that was um, really probably one of my strengths. I never tried to fit in or be like my male counterparts. What I would say is that I always think that as a female, I've had to work harder um, to prove myself, to really get that credibility, um, to show that you're capable of doing the job as opposed to, um, you know, it's, it's just the natural natural progression. And also, I think in terms of navigating the, the, the workplace, then for me, it's like find some other allies that are in that senior role. And typically, we, we do always have, um, we have filters and uh, we have an unbiased conscious. And I think that whether we like it or not, we all have it in some in some some way so when then you're having um you know your male counterparts are the ones carrying out the interviews they're the ones like hiring for the positions there's no female representation or ethnic representation then clearly we're gravitated towards like-minded people so that's always a challenge so for me i would always say 
get to know the people that are on that panel, um, really explore them and what they like and don't like. Um, go and have a chat with them off the record first, just so that you can understand them. And I wouldn't say ever change your way, but maybe sometimes it's the messaging and language between the, the two sexes. I think it is different. So I think it's just being aware of that. Interesting. And when you say get to know, get to know them in a different way off the record, would that mean like maybe go grab coffee and not a work setting? How would you go about that? I, I would absolutely do it in a in a not in a non-work setting. So really, try and build mm-hmm. a relationship. And I think it's that interviewing is no different to trying to sell somebody something. It's about the rapport. It's about the relationship that you have mm-hmm. and that you can build with them. Um, you know, at times in my life, I have even you know looked at football scores, read the paper on a on a Monday mm-hmm. morning because I know yeah. somebody supports a particular team, just so that I can engage in a conversation at the level that they're interested in. Now, I have no interest mm-hmm. in 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 football at all, um, but if it was going <laughs> to help me build that relationship and rapport with them then I would you know spend 10 minutes of my time reading about it so at least then you could go in and say hey great your team had a great score this weekend or a bit disappointed must be upset about that but it it automatically creates a connection and I think that that Mm -hmm. that's the bit that's really important in any relationship I completely completely agree you started a business from scratch and had to learn everything from marketing, sales, and and how to get investors. How did you learn all of this? And what advice do you have for startups or somebody with a product idea but has no idea where to start? I think for me, I mean... Having had a corporate career, I could see or have a vision for how businesses maybe should run Mm -hmm. um, to be successful. So that was absolutely a a benefit to me. However, starting from scratch and I hadn't come across or been exposed to functions like marketing, sales, um, et cetera, in my career. So for me, the starting point was really coming up with – what is a business plan? And I and I would say everybody start here. So you have a plan about what your thing is, your product or your service. Then what is a business plan? And I and it really is formulating that. So it's the well, why? Why are you doing it? Who are you doing mm-hmm. it for? Where who's going to buy it? Where are they going to buy it? And understanding all of those elements of that plan will really help you, I think, formulate your idea in your head. Because I think all too often we maybe have a good idea, but when we actually start to tease out of ourselves some of these more detailed questions, it changes our perspective of where we are and where mm-hmm. we came from. So I think that that's really important. There is a lot of support out there when you start looking. And I would say take that support because trying to do everything on your own, you'll make lots of mistakes. Somebody's already made those mistakes if you can shortcut those um save yourself time and money in the process then then why not and where i would go for that help and support um here in the uk we have things like business link the banks have startup communities there are innovation spaces and co-working spaces where lots of people with good ideas um just hire pods and work together so you can share share ideas around um and also ask for mentors now throughout my whole career um self-employed or or employed running my own business but the throughout all of my career I would always say if you need help go and ask somebody no I don't think anybody's ever said no to me I'm not going to help you I don't want to so you know always go and ask for the help and and try and align yourself with a good mentor that's maybe one or two steps ahead of you that's experienced what you have and and I think these people change as you go through life and you become more experienced Uh, but do call upon you know the help of others and be there to support them as well throughout their journey as you start to grow you may overtake them and then you can be beneficial to them and help them so it is a a two-way relationship I don't think you can just take all the time but I absolutely think that that's where you where you need to be. 
Kind of going off of that, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about your aim was to build a company that was scalable, but you needed more cash to do so. Recently, as you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, you received funding. How did you go about this and what should those do who are looking for investors? I think, again, there's, it's, it's dependent on where you're starting. So I would say there's different levels of investment. So um, mm-hmm. if you need a few thousand pounds, you're very early stage in seed and just want somebody to get going, then I would say your best approach there is to go to either angel investors, um, depending on whether you're business to business or business to consumer, some of the crowdfunding platforms, and even some banks will give some, um, some loans and things as well. There's also things like debt financing uh, that you can go. Now, how did I find out all about this when I first, first started looking? Well, I I literally went to people like the British Business Bank and asked them, well, what are the different variations of funding? Where do you need to be and at what level um, should you be able to be able to go out and pitch for the funding? One common theme throughout all of it is you have to have a pitch deck that is going, they don't know your domain. You have to have a pitch deck that convinces them and they're really invested in you and your idea. Um, and they don't do an awful lot of due diligence about the idea. It really is about you. And do they think you've got the ability to commercialize your idea and what you're doing? Um, if you're looking then for more money, so at your next level, when you're looking for, for seed type money, then you probably can still go to the angel networks and, and get that sort of income, or you're starting then to look at venture capitalists, private equity, uh, and those types of things. Again, I would always say use a broker. You can spend an awful lot of time um, mm-hmm. searching the website yourself, looking for these different communities, presenting your pitch deck to them. But as with um, most relationships, if it comes via an introduction, then you tend to you know, make the relationship quicker and they tend to take you a little bit more Definitely. seriously. So I would say use a broker. They have access to varying different levels of um, of investors and different investor types, whether they be high net worths, angels, um, VCs, PEs. They have access to all of those and they you only pay them a percentage of the money they find for you. So in, in that respect, I'd say that it's a good service. They can help you build your pitch decks and your plans. They can do practicing with you. So really polish up uh, where you are. That's that's actually awesome advice. Do you have any other tips and tricks when it comes to building a, a deck? I would say listen to the people around you. Um, but mm-hmm. I think for me, in terms of, of the building the deck, it really is down to, to the content. I think it needs to be concise and it really is what is the problem? That That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. What is the problem that you're going to solve? Mm-hmm. Who's the team that's going to solve it? Who are the people that are going to buy from you? So what's the customer? What does your competitor landscape look like? Why should we invest in you? How much do you want? What are you going to do with it? What am I going to get for it? The recession hit one year into your business. How did you recover? And and since we are in similar times with COVID-19, what advice would you give to those trying to stay afloat? I think so. Yeah, I set up my first business in 2007 and I'd um, literally come out of the construction industry. So that's where a lot of my contacts were. Um, So one year later when the recession came, that is the sector as well that's hit hard by a recession. Mm -hmm. Um, So at that time, how I recovered was really changing my messaging. So during like recessions and period of, of hardship, 
the easiest thing to do is to cut stuff because it's like you're probably your most expensive asset and it's easy just to chop the heads to chop money off of the um off of your costs so that's where it tends to people tend to focus at that time i changed my message completely to say you know we're in a world where there is a shortage of skills and mm-hmm. why do you want to lose your skills or give that talent to your competitors you know you want to really do all you can to retain mm-hmm. uh, retain those skills and talent and make sure that you're the best and stronger when you come out of the other side but actually we waste in a business so much um time money and effort either doing things the wrong way skills misuses the wrong person doing the wrong jobs or highly paid person doing a more administrative job uh, people doing things twice because they're not effective and i think if you start to look at that and strip all of that out suddenly your cost base goes down anyway quite considerably and then you're more efficient when you do recover you've got the um, resources and the capability to actually do more as well because you're operating in a more streamlined effective way that's really interesting that you say that because a lot of businesses, that was one of the first things they did was cut a lot of staff. Exactly. And you think the cost of get, getting that stuff back again, so the cost of re-employing those staff, the cost of skills training them, the cost of getting them where to the, the same position or level as to where the stuff were that you've let go, you know, it, it really is. And, I, and that, I would say, it's all levels of the spectrum. So even if you took, I don't know, the lowest paid person in my company, somebody that does administration, they didn't come in day one and could just do the administration. You know, they had to learn their role and their processes around that. So still to be efficient and effective, I would say it takes six months. Well, then there's six months salary there, plus the recruitment costs. So that's all money you're going to have to reinvest just to get back to where you were. So that's it. So I think it's just been innovative and, and rethinking where you are. So, you know, COVID again is exactly, exactly the same. So, you know, some um, companies, businesses and sectors have been severely hit by COVID. So like hospitality is a, is a good example there. Uh, where others like your pharmaceutical sector and your consumer goods in terms of food and beverages have really exploded during this whole thing. So I think for for everything good that happens, then bad happens on, on the reverse side of that. But again, it's like, how do you be agile enough for it not to affect you? So in terms of Ebates, the business, Um, We are digitizing a particular process around rebate management. Today, that's managed by multiple um, people within an organization, typically using Excel spreadsheets. So actually, during the COVID situation where people are working from home, accessibility to that data isn't isn't there. You can't gather around the desk to talk around Mm -hmm. the spreadsheet so easily. So it's actually highlighting even more so the need to digitize those processes. If it was online and things were electronic, it's easy to adapt to. Um, Also, those businesses that have been more used to technology have have just gone away to work at home during this lockdown period uh, have continued more or less as normal using zoom and things like that microsoft teams and those types of tools to to really continue with their their business and their communication so i think it is just about being agile and really thinking about um, what you could do differently what challenges do you find most businesses face when wanting to digitize? Do you have any tips and tricks to help overcome those roadblocks? I think for me, the challenges that I find in when businesses want to, I, I to me, it's more they want to digitize, um, but it's the there's always too much to do. So mm. there's always too much to do. What are you choosing to do? And quite often, I think it depends on where the decision making group in an organisation sits. So in terms of digitizing, always uses some 
piece of technology um, and I would say do the business own the technology strategy for what they need as a business to drive the business results or do IT own the strategy and typically where mm-hmm. IT own the strategy there's a real disjoint because they don't always recognize or have enough um, knowledge about the process that you're trying to digitize. So I say that that's one of the biggest challenges in terms of of where we are coming from um, when we're trying to digitize within a business. Businesses themselves, I always think there's always a lot to do and so much on. And these processes are in existence today. It's just that they're very manual. And I'll give you an example of that throughout Mm -hmm. uh, one part of my career. So we were doing a piece of work and it was all around... um, business process improvement um, around accounts payable invoices. So the company we were working for, all these invoices would come in, they would stamp the pieces of paper, enter them into their system, put a sheet on the side of them, put it in an internal envelope, send it all around the business to get them approved. Eventually they might come back and then they would get paid. But what that led to was obviously you were they were putting them on the system, they were then sending them out, uh, they got lost in the post going out, some never came back, suppliers then weren't being paid, That was leading to both parties, the supplier and your internal clerk, having to deal with those queries. So the query levels were higher. So there was no straight through processing there at all. Mm -hmm. And we put a piece of software in that basically took the um, invoices, scanned them all in, workflowed it all throughout the approval chain. You could see where the bottlenecks were, who was holding it up, et cetera. So that was a great example of digitizing a process. But the the fear of that business, first of all, was like, oh, but we're going to have to get rid of all these stuff. And, you know, we don't want this to be seen as a project to make people redundant and it's like well that isn't actually what you're doing what you're doing is moving them onto value add activities so at that same time that company didn't do any reconciliations of suppliers they weren't doing any rationalization about where should they be buying from where could they get the better deals from they just were processing pieces of paper reactively so actually when you look at that shift then and and try and work out where can i add value and where could we work better in conjunction with procurement to look at some of this stuff and be able to provide the data analytics to streamline, then then that's the bit then that gets them over the edge. But I think sometimes there is that education needed to the businesses as well. Definitely, definitely. Do you have any tips for a company that's currently going through a digital transformation? I would say embrace it. Take the expertise of the people that you're working with with because quite often when we're trying to replace a manual process we can't get that manual process out of our head so i would say you know really start off understanding your process today and how it works and then look at what your to be process is going to be open it up to more people really think about um you know the, the workflow today what happens in your manual process does do things go off system do they get signed do we have to make phone calls and how much mm-hmm. of that could all be automated that would then come up with your 2B process as to how we'd like it to be. And only then would I start putting in a piece of technology once you understand that. Because all too often throughout my career, which was one of the reasons I started my first business, was I'd seen software vendors going into businesses saying, hey, we've got this piece of software. It's fantastic. You know, you want to implement Mm -hmm. it. And the software probably was good, but they'd be implemented. It would cost a fortune. It wouldn't work. Projects would fail. And I think there was two things going on there. The, The customer themselves just thought, well, hang on, you're the vendor of the software. You should be able to make it work. That's what you said it did on the tin. And then you've mm. also, so they like, abdicate responsibility, really. 
um, in that sense. And then the other thing is that the software vendors themselves would sell you anything. They'd sell ice to the Eskimos. So it is like, you know, yeah. um, sometimes that's ethical there. And I think if you, you do really need to start off with the business process and the people that are operating it. So where are they? What devices do they need? If you're in a cold food factory in a in a freezer type store, it's got to be a device that this app can work on that's going mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, have those extremities of weather. If you're on a construction site where you might drop it in a hole or whatever on a hard concrete surface, it has to be able to suffer that. So you have to understand the people, where they're working, how they want to work, then the physical process itself and what you're trying mm-hmm. to optimize and digitize. And only at that point do you put in a piece of technology because all the technology is doing is giving you the ability to digitize that process in the way you want it. Leanne, thank you so much. This was all so helpful. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast. Where can those find you? What's your social media handle? So I think the best places to find me really, you can look on our website, which is www.e-bait.io. You can also find me on LinkedIn. So I myself are on LinkedIn. My name is Leanne Bonacook. We also have a company LinkedIn page as well, which is eBay Limited. So follow the company as well. Thanks so much, Leanne. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent or you yourself are looking for a new exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.